0: my friends welcome to episode number 558 of this here electronic engineering podcast called amelia's weekly fish fry brought to you by eejournal.com and written produced and hosted by yours truly amelia dalton folks this week we are talking about sports but not just any sports. We're talking about sensors in sports, some super cool new applications in this arena and the use of sensors in the Olympics with Peter Hartwell, Chief Technology Officer at InvenSense, a TDK company. Peter and I also talk about the benefits that InvenSense sensors bring to sports applications. And where Peter thinks sensing technologies are headed in the future also this week i investigate a new brain implant that may be able to enable communication from thoughts alone but first please welcome peter to fish fry hi peter thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you i'm happy to be back
0: Excellent. Okay, so we're seeing sensors implemented more and more in sports activities these days. So, what kind of benefits do you think sensors bring to the sports arena?
1: It's something we really love to talk about because, you know, the proliferation of sensors into wearable devices has put us on this path of the the quantified self, right? So, you know, a lot of us are tracking our steps every day. Right, you're getting those little activity notifications, like, you know, hey, maybe it's time to get up and take a break and walk around a little bit. You know, that's the motion sensor in there. That's bread and butter for my company. But when you begin to look at how you can take that to the next level, you know, we're actually trying to improve your technique at something. You can put this in a golf club, you can put it in a tennis rackets, and you can really get some analytics and stuff that help you sort of understand how you're performing today. And then there's also a safety aspect that's coming now. So a lot of us, you know, particularly with kids, you can get a helmet now that's implemented with one of these accelerometer sensors, and you can see actually how much impact you have. And, you know, the kid says, I'm fine, you know, and we can actually look at the data now and, and try to understand whether, That's one that I need to look at this uh, a little bit differently or like, let's sit on the bench.
0: So you talked a little bit about applications, but tell me some more new cool applications you're seeing in this arena.
1: I think when you look at it, if I take that performance analytics to the next step right now, you actually have companies that are selling services to actually take your data and be your coach, you know, whether it's, it's to motivate you to work harder or actually build a workout tailored for you and based on your data right? Which is really neat to think about that. It's something that most of us wouldn't think about the expense of a personal trainer, but the internet and sensors and, and all that comes together and something that's much more accessible now. I think the other side of it is is we're seeing this in actually the officiating of sports, right? And depending on whether your team won or lost, this is either the good thing or not, right? But yeah, you know, I like to think back to the, the World Cup last year, which is something we had a little bit of involvement in. So the, the soccer ball was implemented with a motion sensor. There was radar watching the ball. There were cameras there. And, you know, there were a couple of calls in in really important matches. You know, the one that went past the end, the Japanese guy seemed to kick it all the way back, you know, backwards, right? You know, but if you look at the sensors, it's just that angle. Because unless you were there, yeah, according to the rules, that ball was in, right? And and the other one was the ball was going and, and the attack the guy's head before it went in the goal and of course he said it hit his head and maybe it hit his hair but according to the ball it didn't <laughs> the data's there right then the ball is impartial on whether the superstar headed the ball or not right so so i think if we approach it carefully it's not trying to change sport but it's it's really trying to to be that part of of you know making sure we all get it right you know but i think when it really succeeds is when that technology disappears into the background right you know it's not interfering with the game but it's it's helping with these points where there's so much on the line we got to get it right
0: that's true now let's talk specifically about the olympics coming up now where do you see sensors being used in the olympics in particular
1: Uh, the olympics is really neat right because you know every four years we all get a bunch of exposure to a lot of sports that we probably only watch every four years right And and that's a place where actually sensors can really help to make these sports more accessible to people who don't watch it all the time. Right. I mean, the easy example to think of is, you know, American football. And, you know, you've got the line of scrimmage and you've got the first down line. And until they painted those on the field with the magic of computers and CGI, it was hard to explain to anyone who didn't grow up with the game. You start applying that to all of these other crazy sports, right? Whether it's sailing or, you know, the golf, watching the ball or ice hockey with how quick the puck moves around, cycling or, you know, it it opens up those sports in in ways that help people to watch them. But what's happening at the Olympics is, you know, you've got broadcasters from all over the world and they can't actually be in that venue because it's just not big enough. So they're watching the feed. And what's happening now is the sensor data is augmenting what the analysts are seeing behind the scenes to help bring those of us who are watching it with these experts kind of closer into things they may have missed because again though because of the camera angles you're sort of limited. It's different than if you're actually there in person. So that performance analysis that and then in timing, sensors and timing. So I was reading about things are now being timed, you know, to the, not just a thousandth of a second or a millisecond, right? We're going into the microseconds now and trying to get that accurate enough to where there's multiple sensors. It's not just a touchpad on the wall of the swimming pool. There's a motion sensor there, a pressure sensor. It's feeling the wave of that water coming. And when is that exact time? Both hands were on the wall of the pool, depending on your stroke. But, you know, it's, it's trying to get those things right again. That's where it's changed. So it's this combination of, I think, making it more accessible through instrumenting both the athletes and the equipment. And that's where the smaller, lighter sensors disappearing into the background. But it's also that, let's get the right, let's get the call right.
0: So let's talk about the InvenSense sensors in particular. Now, what kind of benefits do they bring to these kinds of applications?
1: So our line of sensors, you know, we do accelerometers and gyroscopes, we do pressure sensors, we do microphone, we do ultrasound. And you look at our motion sensors, they've been designed from the start to really deliver that performance you need, particularly in sports. So we're talking about high sample rate. You know, this is how fast we're measuring that data to make sure we don't miss anything. We're talking about high full-scale range, which is, you know, make sure you're not clipping on a signal. This is particularly, you know, think about swinging a baseball bat, a racket, a a golf club. You know, we need to have a high enough range that that you're capturing all of that speed of that motion, all of that acceleration, and you don't want to miss anything. The next thing is robustness. You think of anything as harsh as the head of a golf club is trying to put an instrumentation there and have it survive that. It's something that we have always designed for. Our products end up in some of the, you know, think of those outdoor activities you do or even dropping your cell phone and, and wanting it to survive that. These are harsh conditions. And then that's something we've designed for. But then back to Dovetail and what we've talked about so far, it's about low power and small size. If I can't put this into something without disturbing that, this is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Which is the art of measuring something disturbs that system. And so so you're trying to minimize that disturbance. I want to weave it into your clothing. I want to put it into something wearable that's not actually interfering with you in the sport. And so very small size, low power, you need batteries that can last through that length of event or, you know, you don't want to be really literally charging in the middle of something. And so all of that really plays into why we've been very successful in all those fun things we can do to make sports more accessible and more interesting.
0: So let's put your uh, forward thinking hat on here, Peter. Where do you see these kinds of sensing technologies headed in the future?
1: It's a question I always love to talk about because as, as CTO, that's my job is to look out there and, and try to figure out what's next. And, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the motion sensors and other things I do. We do microphones, which is an ear, right? You know, we actually don't do cameras. We, we do a lot of things to make cameras work better, but cameras are your eyes. And then if you think about what what is the other sense that you have, your personal sensor, your nose is the next most important one on that list. And you and I are having a conversation right now. We're really focused on something, or if someone's listening to this, you know, intently, and maybe they're even driving. Your nose is sitting there as a safety sensor. When you smell that smell, it's that alarm that's going to go off. May, often, before you see something or hear something, you know, particularly if we're talking about something that's combusting or burning, right? You're going to smell that smoke before that. And so, if I look at that as the opportunity of what's next there's two things one is actually trying to measure the air quality where you're actually performing the sporting activity and you know there was a great length of the Beijing Olympics to try to get ready for athletes who are going to come but it's, a, it's even on a personal level it's maybe making a decision about whether you actually want to go outside and exert yourself today or not so one of the big ones in a big city on a humid day in the summer is actually ozone and so being able to understand sort of that ozone and whether it's available well, this is a gas sensor, we want to do that. I've heard from my friends, if you play two hours of tennis in Houston in the summertime on a bad ozone day, your lungs are going to feel it for a couple of days afterwards. And that's something that maybe you know a sensor can say, hey, do you need to play here today. Or if we understand across the city, maybe there's a better place to go play, depending on how the wind is blowing and things like that. So I think that's a real opportunity around gas sensing from air quality. And the other piece you can do with that is there's a lot of stuff that as we metabolize And we breathe out that looking at actually what's coming out of you is an opportunity to understand your metabolism of what's going on. And and there's other really interesting things that we've seen. One of them is lactose intolerance, which can be measured by compounds that come out with dairy. There's sort of this 10% of people that know they're lactose intolerant. And then it turns out there's about another 20 to 25% who don't. And when you show them the data and say, hey, you're mildly lactose, this light bulb goes like, "Ah." That explains why when I have dessert over at Grandma's house, I don't feel so great afterwards. Like they never put it together, and so I think that this gas sensing is the next kind of really big opportunity to to move forward. And so yeah, it's something we're working on. So
0: that is very interesting. I may be one of that twenty five percent actually. Um, <laughs> so. Peter, it is time for your off-the-cuff question. Now, we're recording this around Halloween time, and you told me that you had a fabulous Halloween costume this year. So tell me more about it.
1: Great. Yeah, Halloween is, is one of those things that, depending on whose eyes you see it through, it's either your least favorite or your most favorite day of the year. And I would encourage everybody to take your inner desire to role play and be something else, it just embraces. So this year we're decorating the yard. We kind of went on a pirate theme, and I uh, I went full Johnny Depp this year. And so you know I I got the the whole cosplay costume together from uh, if you pre order in China in the summer you can get this thing really quickly and cheaply, custom tailored. And then all it's all about the accessories. So the jewelry and the hats and the wig and the, the rings and uh, drew and tattoos and all that. Just and finding a compass and and yeah, all of those things. It's so much fun. And then, and my kids really love it when they see adults get into it. And I think that's to me the magic of this holiday is it just lets us all pretend on something and it just becomes a party. So you know the kids are trick or treating and in my neighborhood the adults do too. We just carry around a (laughs) carry around a cup instead. So
0: (laughs) I love that. Yes indeed. Awesome. Well as always it was a pleasure speaking with you Peter. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you. I always love your questions. It gets me thinking and so yeah thanks. Have a happy Halloween.
0: Thank you. Did you hear about the new brain prosthetic that can decode signals from the brain's speech center to predict what sound someone is trying to say? So get this, a collaborative team of engineers, neuroscientists, and neurosurgeons from Duke University have developed a new technology that might one day help people unable to talk due to neurological disorders regain the ability to communicate through a brain-computer interface. Gregory Coogan, Ph.D., a professor of neurology at Duke University's School of Medicine, explains the motivation to create this technology like this. He says, there are many patients who suffer from debilitating motor disorders like ALS or locked-in syndrome that can impair their ability to speak but the current tools available to allow them to communicate are generally very slow and cumbersome. So, how slow is very slow? Well, before now, the speech decoding rate clocked in was at about 78 words per minute. Now, most of us speak around 150 words per minute, and maybe some of us talk a little faster than that. That'd be me. Okay, so why this lag in speech decoding versus spoken words? Well, it's partially due to the relatively few brain activity sensors that can be fused onto a paper-thin piece of material that would be placed atop the surface of the brain. Fewer sensors mean less decipherable information to decode. For this new research, this team from Duke was looking to change that. So they brought in Duke Institute for Brain Sciences faculty member, Jonathan Viventi, whose biomedical engineering lab specializes in making ultra-thin, flexible, high-density brain sensors. So what Viventi and his team did for this project was nothing short of amazing. On a postage stamp sized piece of medical grade flexible plastic, they managed to embed 256 microscopic brain sensors. So after fabricating these new implants, this team worked with several Duke University hospital neurosurgeons to recruit four patients to test these implants. Now, these patients were already going to have brain surgery for a variety of reasons. So this was a perfect opportunity to temporarily place these devices on their brains. But time was an issue. Gregory Coogan explains this part of the research like this. I like to compare it to a NASCAR pit crew. We don't want to add any extra time to the operating procedure, so we had to be in and out within 15 minutes. As soon as the surgeon and medical team said go, we rushed into action and the patient performed the task. So let's talk about that task. To test this technology, this team asked the patients to participate in a simple listen and repeat task. They heard a series of nonsense words like Ava, Kug, and Vip, and then spoke each one out loud. And then the device recorded activity from each patient's speech motor cortex as it coordinated muscles that moved the larynx, tongue, lips, and jaw. From there, another member of the team took the speech and neurodata and fed it into a machine learning algorithm to see how accurately it could predict what sound was being made based only on the brain activity recordings. Interestingly, This new decoder technology got some sounds right more of the time than others. For instance, the letter G, this decoder got it right about 84% of the time, but only when it was the first sound of the made up word. The accuracy dropped when the sound was in the middle or the end of the word. And it had trouble particularly with letters that sound similar like P's and B's. Overall, the accuracy of this new brain implant decoder was around 40%. Now, that might sound kind of low, but it's actually quite good, considering that other brain-to-speech technologies require hours or even days' worth of data to draw from. This new algorithm worked with only 90 seconds of spoken data from a 15-minute test. Wow! So, where is this technology headed from here? With a $2.4 million grant from the National Institutes of Health, this team is hard at work on a cordless version of the device. Now, this new speech decoding technology is certainly not ready for prime time just yet, but this team is confident that the trajectory of this new speech technology is headed in the right direction. So if you want even more information about this new study out of Duke University or InvenSense's Smart Motion Solutions, I've included a couple links below the player on this week's fish frying page on eejournal.com and in the description for this week's YouTube episode as well. Hey, have you checked out EE e. Journal on social media yet? Well, you should. You can find us at facebook.com slash EE Journal. If you're into Twitter, or X, I guess, you can monitor our tweets at EE e. Journal T. And don't forget, if you would like to follow my personal account, check out Amelia D. 1978 And hey, if LinkedIn is more your thing, sure, I dig it. You can follow us or me on LinkedIn as well. And we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash eejournal. Folks, it is chock full of all kinds of techie videos, including our very popular Chalk Talk webcast series hosted by me. And of course, you can also subscribe to our EE Journal YouTube channel as well. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this here podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or just about any other podcasting platform to listen to some super exciting upcoming episodes. Thank you everyone for tuning in. If you know of any cool new technology or heck you just want to chat, shoot me a line at Amelia, that's A-M-E-L-I-A, at eejournal.com or post a comment on our forums on eejournal. For the week of November 17th, 2023, I'm Amelia Dalton. and You've been fried.